Another question from our session is, when unwholesome thoughts trouble me in my meditation, I usually examine those thoughts and review the five hindrances in meditation and apply the appropriate medicine. Is this correct? Is this also how we apply the Vitaka Santana instructions from the Buddha? When we look at the first sign that the Buddha asks us to look at in the Vitaka Santana Sutta, the Buddha asks us to give attention to what is wholesome. So we are like the skilled carpenter, where we knock out and remove and extract the unwholesome thoughts by means of the fine wholesome thoughts. So when you apply the five hindrances as a meditation, what you're doing is you're diagnosing where are the thoughts coming from? Are they associated with greed, hatred or delusion? And we know that the five hindrances are what prevent us from entering into higher concentration. So when you diagnose and you figure out which of the hindrances is really quite strong, then you know you can look into your meditation toolkit and see what meditation do I need to apply here? What meditation do I switch to in order to alleviate the unwholesome hindrance that is present? If we consider what the Buddha says about the five hindrances, there are so many suttas where the Buddha is giving advice and giving instructions on how to remove the five hindrances. He talks about them as the whole heap of unwholesome, that they are the makers of blindness, they obstruct or weaken wisdom, prevent us from direct knowledge, and in many ways are the parasites of the mind. They lead away from Nibbana and towards ignorance. In fact, if you remember from the Avijja Sutta, the five hindrances are the nutriment for ignorance. And so we must remove them, otherwise we continue to breed ignorance. Hence why the Vitakasantana Sutta begins with this. If you think about what is the nutriment for the five hindrances, the nutriment is really whatever misconduct we do by body, speech and mind. So you can see where you can cut off the ability to breed the five hindrances if one stops doing misconduct. So when in our meditation we acknowledge the five hindrances, what we really do is we're diagnosing the illnesses in our mind and then looking, what is the appropriate medicine here? And then you switch to that meditation. Really what we're doing throughout all of the Buddha's meditation, following his instructions, following an insight pathway, is really about correcting the wrong view in, in order to enter into the right view. So if you think about it, the right view is what helps us to enter into higher concentration because the mind is getting the truth. It is no longer deluded, no longer breeding greed, hatred and delusion. So this is how you enter into higher concentration. You must correct the wrong view. It's useful to review the five hindrances and what the Buddha says about nourishment and denourishment of each of the five hindrances. When we talk about nourishment, we're really talking about the samudaya, the arising. And when we talk about denourishment, we're talking about the passing away or atangama. So in the Ahara Sutta, this is where the Buddha explains all of this. And he's talking about both the arising of unarisen hindrances, as well as the increase and expansion of what has already arisen in terms of hindrances. So with the first hindrance of sensual desire, the Buddha is saying that the nutriment is the sign of attractive, subhanimata. And when he looks at the uh, denourishment, he says, look at the sign of unattractive, a subhanimata. So what we have here is really Sensual desire comes from coveting, longing, greedy for gain. We believe that we can fix with sensual pleasures. 
And this is the wrong view. It's coming from seeing something as fair instead of foul, attractive instead of unattractive. It's the asubha-subha vipalasa, that perversion of fair in the foul, attractive in the unattractive, beauty in what is repulsive. So if a person is coming to mind, then what we are misapprehending is the body. We are misapprehending the physical nutriment. And so what you do here is you change the meditation from whatever it is you're doing, whether it's uh, contemplating the first noble truth or you're doing karanya metta or doing some other sutta meditation. You need to turn the attention to maybe the 32 body parts or maybe looking at the body through the nine different holes or looking at the body as a sack of impurities or seeing the decay of the body, the aging. And when you look at it that way, it helps to correct the perversion. So you enter into right view and then that no longer troubles you, those thoughts of sensuality. If it refers to something like food, then again, what you can do is look at the decay of food, the over-ripening of food. If you were to leave it out for a long time, and would you consider it as delicious and wonderful and would you eat it? So this is the way you apply the medicine. Now, there are other similes that the Buddha gives. The Buddha gives particularly one in the Mahāsapura Sutta when we look at uh, central desire as debt. It's a way of applying the Ina Sutta, and we've looked at this before. And so you can contemplate it in that way too. When we look at the hindrance of ill will, the Buddha often asks us to view it as sickness or illness in the mind. The mind is imbued with aversion. So the nutriment that the Buddha says is the sign of aversion, patiga nimitta. So when these thoughts start to arise, then we start to unwisely contemplate all the things around aversion, all the things around particular people that have annoyed us, that have caused us to have unwholesome thoughts. So the denourishment comes when you start to look at the liberation of mind through loving-kindness. So what you switch to is Karniyametta Sutta meditation. What we know is that misconduct drives the hindrances. So if you remember from the first few steps and all the way through the Karniyametta inside pathway, you are purifying misconduct through body, speech and mind. And it becomes more and more refined as you go through the inside pathway because you're removing all traces of resentment, all traces of ill will, all traces of aversion to anyone or any living being. So it's very strong medicine. So this is what you would switch to, no matter what meditation you're doing at the time, when the hindrance is there of ill will, you apply this medicine. When we look at sloth and torpor as a hindrance, the Buddha often uses the simile of being in prison. You're in prison away from the noble Dhamma. You are covered up with dullness and not being able to lift the mind. So in the Ahara Sutta, the Buddha says the nutriment is discontent, lethargy, lazy stretching, drowsiness after meals and sluggishness of mind. When you think about it, it's when you have the wrong kinds of posture, when you've overeaten, when there is just general discontent tolerating something such as wrong view, 
And when you allow laziness and lethargy, tiredness to overwhelm, we normally turn to the wrong things. So the mind is almost imprisoned in that mental state. It's heavy. And so the Buddha says the medicine here, particularly in the Hara Sutta, is the element of arousal, the element of endeavor, the element of exertion. We looked at this when we looked at wakefulness in particular, but all these things are associated with virya, with energy, the spiritual faculty of energy. You could even take that further and look at it as arada virya, being energetic to overcome this particular hindrance. The other medicine that the Buddha gives in particular to this is also the alokasanya, the perception of light. In actual fact, when you look at a sutta such as the Pachalayamana Sutta, this can be very helpful because this is in Anguttara Nikaya chapter 7, discourse number 61. The Buddha, if you remember, Venerable Mahamogalana was meditating. This was before he attained Nibbana. And the advice was, first, whatever thought you were thinking, whatever perception was in your mind when sloth and torpor enters, you immediately drop those thoughts. So you're no longer feeding what it was causing sloth and torpor to arise, the dullness in the mind. And instead, you drop that. If it still doesn't go away, then you recall the Dhamma, what you've heard, what you've memorized it, and you contemplate that as a way of overcoming. So in a way, in the Pachalayamana Sutta, it's knocking out the coarse peg with the soft peg. The third step in the Pachalayamana Sutta is, if that doesn't work, you recite out loud the Dhamma, what you've heard and memorized. So you say it out loud, the words of the Buddha, or whatever you recall. And then if that doesn't work, you do something like pulling your earlobes and rubbing your limbs with your hands, something more physical. And then if that doesn't work, you get up, go and wash your face and then look around in order to expand. And then the sixth is the perception of light, the Alokasanya. So you take the perception of daytime or daylight as by day, so by night. And in that way, it helps you to develop the brighter mind. The mind opens up and becomes, as the Buddha would say, unhampered. Now, the perception of light is an interesting one because you go from something that is very dull and dark. So if you think about being in prison, you're locked away. You're not able to see the daylight. You're not given that. And when you bring the perception of light, you're opening up the mind. You're brightening it, lifting it. And if you take that a step further and you consider the light of wisdom of the Buddha, the light of wisdom of the Arahats, then you know that that is blinding light. It is so wise and, and filled with the perfections. They're no longer trainees, they're perfected. And so if you think about that, that can also really lift the mind in terms of the perception of light. And the last one is really walking back and forth, such as walking meditation, and you retract your senses and you contemplate inwardly rather than outwardly. So this is different kinds of medicine for sloth and torpor. But really, it's either energy or any of these different ways that the Buddha has given to Venu Mahamukalana. They are all very, very helpful to overcome the hindrance of sloth and torpor. When we look at the hindrance of restlessness and worry, the Buddha asks us to think of it like being enslaved, enslaved to things which are disturbing the mind. And when you think about what weighs on the mind, particularly in meditation, it comes to things that are happening at work, things that are happening at home, our dealings with people, and also all the external events and things that are unfolding in the world. When you think specifically about restlessness, and the Buddha talks about the nutriment being unsettledness of mind for both restlessness and worry, but in particular to restlessness, we're usually torn between different things. 
So when it comes to work, we might be torn about, should I do this or should I do that? Whether it's going for a promotion or asking for a pay rise or trying to settle a particular dispute at work or a problem in a project or something that's happening at work. So we're torn between different things. And so that's what comes to the mind. The mind becomes very disturbed and unsettled when it proliferates around those things. And then when it comes to maybe in meditation, the same thing. Should I do this or shouldn't I do this in meditation? But usually the ultimate thing when it comes to meditation is, should I stay in this higher concentration or is it better to actually go towards Nibbana? That's the ultimate thing that comes as restlessness in the mind. But there are all these mundane things that come through as restlessness in the mind and we're usually torn. And so that's why the mind keeps swirling in those particular thoughts. The medicine, in fact, when it comes to restlessness is satchaditana, the determination for truth. And the ultimate truth is always Nibbana because there is no more suffering. Everything else, when we're trying to select an option and trying to seek out an answer, is troubled is difficult. So really, if you're trying to enter into higher concentration when it comes to the hindrance of restlessness, the easiest way is to reflect on Nibbana is the only truth. You drop all the falsity, the deception of what is happening in the world, what is happening in terms of what you desire from the world. And so that's the easiest way to actually be able to enter into higher concentration reflecting on Nibbana is the only truth. That's the supreme security. Everything else will slide, will decline, no matter which way you go for it in terms of home life, work life, and everything else that is happening in the world. Now, when it comes to worry, we are usually enslaved by feeling remorse, remorse over past misconduct, or remorse over not doing what we should have done in terms of things that are wholesome. If you think about remorse over misconduct, it's anything we've done by body, speech and mind that we regret. If it's speech, it could be harsh speech. It could be when we told someone off. It could be when we lied to someone or when we've uh, done something wrong to someone in a physical sense. And of course, things in the mind. So really the cause is wrong view when it comes to what we are remorseful over. We were driven by wrong view and misconduct happened. And when it comes to things such as the good that we didn't do, the wholesome things that we didn't do, then remorse comes up when we should have offered something to Sangha or we should have taken the opportunity to help someone out and we didn't do it. So these are the things that come up in meditation to disturb us, to cause the unsettledness of mind. So when it comes particularly to worry or remorse, the medicine here is really to regret, to acknowledge the actions that you did or didn't do in terms of what is wholesome, what is unwholesome, and regret them, acknowledge them and then regret them. And if you regret them three times in terms of the consideration out of the conviction to put the Dhammasanga and really meaning not to do these things again, that you see them as particularly unwholesome, that they're causing unsettledness and you want to refrain in the future, you make this very strong intention not to do it again. You do that three times, it helps to settle the mind. It helps to bring peace to the mind. So this is how you work with the hindrance of restlessness and worry. In both respects, they're, they're driven by a lot of difficulty in the mind, particularly swayed by wrong view. And when you're swayed by wrong view, you're elevating things in the world above the noble Dhamma. And so that's where the affliction really comes in. When we look at the hindrance of doubt, 
the Buddha asks us to look at this like trying to cross the desert. And the Buddha specifically says a wealthy person trying to cross the desert and get to the other side. And this is very much like the spiritual path. You're trying to find the correct path and to stay on the path in order to get to the other side, to realize the wholesome states, to realize Nibbana ultimately. So the Buddha says that the nutriment for doubt, the hindrance of doubt, is we are unwisely contemplating all the things that are the basis for doubt. And so the denourishment, the Buddha says, is wholesome and unwholesome states, blamable and blameless states, inferior and superior states, dark and bright states are what we should be wisely contemplating. When we look at the hindrance of doubt, we often falter because we're unsure and it is connected to the hindrance of sloth and torpor because the mind is dull, the mind is not seeing clearly, correctly, it's spinning. So you can break this down in many ways by looking at all the things that one is stingy towards. Doubt comes in when the mind is still imbued with stinginess for gain, stinginess for dwelling, stinginess for families or groups, stinginess for reputation, stinginess for dhamma. It's blocking our mind from being able to enter into higher concentration. When you look at any of the above, the reason why it's very helpful as a medicine is because when you contemplate anything that comes to the mind, there's a stinginess there and it is blocking and preventing from the higher concentration because you are still thinking that there is something that can be held onto, controlled, gained from those things. You're not seeing the fleetingness, the impermanence of those things. So when it comes to people, for example, we get so caught up in certain things like that, that we don't see that these conditions are impermanent, subject to change, therefore dukkha, suffering, painful. And then when that is the case, it's not worth taking as me and mine. Same with all our material belongings, our house, our business, same deal. It is fleeting, maybe only for this lifetime, maybe even shorter than that when you see people's businesses and things get affected by floods, natural disaster, thieves, all kinds of things. And so when you see the changingness of that, you realize how painful it can be and it's not worth taking as me and mine. So this is one way of contemplating doubt. Same with reputation. What blocks us when it comes to reputation is we invest so much of our time and effort into that, but it is also fleeting. It is also subject to praise and blame. And then when it comes to all the different things associated with that, is it worth really taking as me and mine? There is no safety and security in reputation. So there are various ways of looking at doubt. So when the Buddha says wholesome and unwholesome states, blamable and blameless, inferior and superior, dark and bright states, it's really coming back to the first noble truth of suffering. If you can see that birth is suffering, if you can see that aging is suffering, sickness is suffering, death is suffering, just these four particular points in the first noble truth, it's as simple as that because it corrects the view. And when you correct the view in that way, you're really seeing Anicca Dukkha Natta correctly. And that is the bigger picture when it comes down to it. It really removes those seeds of doubt and 
stops it from increasing and expanding and you get back into the right view by dropping the wrong view, abandoning the wrong view. We've now reviewed the different hindrances that can afflict the mind. And in doing so, we know what is the nourishment and denourishment of those very five hindrances. When you come back to the Vitaka Santana Sutta, you can see you're giving attention to what is wholesome when you diagnose and decide, actually what I need here as the medicine is, is this. And when you do that, you're switching signs, you're switching meditation. So it's very helpful. So this is something that can be applied in aligning it with Vitaka Santana Sutta. We have so many different things in our meditation toolkit. We're quite spoilt for choice. And the beauty of it is in the application of it, making effort towards that. It's no good floundering in the meditation and allowing those hindrances to take hold and to block the higher concentration. So effort really is, is needed. And when you know what the medicine is, it's so much easier. That's how you know what to switch to.